This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. Hi, everyone. I have the pleasure today of introducing Councilman Matt Mahan of the San Jose City Council in District 10. And really excited to uh, introduce Matt to you to everybody because I know one thing that's very close to both his heart and my heart, obviously, is around a conversation of data, but more importantly, you know, allocation of resources and how does data really apply to that because it's such a vast topic. But just want to start first with Matt, if you don't mind sharing with individuals kind of like your background and how you got involved with the city council. And for those especially that aren't in the Bay Area, you know, learning a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Well, Tracy, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I'm excited for our conversation. Uh, To answer your question, I I grew up in a little farming town on the central coast of California, one of those places that your strawberries uh, come from. So what's called Watsonville. And um, when it was time for high school, our local high school had a really high dropout rate. And so I commuted about two hours each way by public bus to go to a Catholic prep school in San Jose. And that was, that was the big city from, from at least where I was coming from. And I just fell in love with San Jose as a city that is diverse, that's innovative, that's got great weather, great neighborhoods, and always knew that I wanted to try to come back to San Jose. And my wife, who I met in college, is actually from Miami. So I had to do a lot of convincing to, to <laughs> persuade her to move to move out here. But, um, you know, happily married here in San Jose, raising two little kids, uh, Nina and Luke, and um, have had a uh, circuitous path to elected office. I um, when I graduated from college, I had the opportunity to go back east. I went to Harvard studied uh, politics, philosophy, and economics, essentially, did a uh, one-year economic development fellowship uh, with a Rockefeller fellowship down in South America, worked with family farmers in Bolivia, came back through the Teach for America program, taught middle school in Eastside San Jose for a couple of years, and then um, thought I was on my way to law school, but ended up in tech and spent just over a decade building two technology startups in the civic tech space, which was an incredible learning experience. And I'm sure we'll chat more about that. And then when the second company was acquired, it just so happened that our city council seat was, was opening up. I'd always been interested in local government. You know, my hometown had so many challenges when I was a kid that I was always interested in in the public sphere is the place where we have to come together to make decisions and allocate our finite resources and decide how we're going to make progress on the on the challenges and opportunities that we collectively face. And so I ran for city council on a very grassroots campaign, a lot of door knocking and 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 house parties and and local community meetings and um, have been on the council now for a year and it's been um, a rewarding but challenging experience, as I'm sure we'll talk about. So it's interesting enough, I do know where Watsonville is because my family is originally from Salinas. So, 
at lettuce, right? And so my, right. my grandfather was born and raised actually in Salinas and my dad was raised in Salinas. So it's interesting how lives kind of like uh, intersect. But when you mentioned Watsonville, I'm like, I do know exactly where Watsonville, <laughs> obviously for, since I'm from the Bay Area, um, would drive down, you know, past through San Jose and that type of thing down to Watson. Right, right. And we're often confused with Castroville, the artichoke capital of the world. <laughs> they're, they're our neighbors, but we're, we're more uh, into berries. <laughs> you got to mention that it's where strawberries come from. Everyone has to have their stake of what produce item, right, That's right. you're related to. But in terms of like the tech space and what you've learned in the um, kind of for-profit sector, but especially startup how have you applied that to your role today and how has that been helpful or how has it been relatable in terms of the social sector and um, the private sector? I think individuals would be curious to know about that. I think it's a great question and, and one that um, I've reflected on a lot this year because the, the experience of being in the startup ecosystem is that you're, you are operating in an environment of extreme uncertainty you have a limited amount of venture capital backing, typically. You have to set very clear goals. You have to be extremely customer-centric. You have to understand who wants your product and why and, and how do you get it to them cost-effectively. And everything is very metrics-driven. It's fast-paced. You are creating what, what I would call learning cycles on a very short time frame. It could be a matter of days sometimes where you put out a new feature, you have a hypothesis about how the customer, in our case, the, the, the users of our product, the, you know, the average citizens who want to be more civically engaged, how they might react to that feature. And then you measure and you analyze the data and, and you say, well, were our hypotheses correct? And more, more often than not, they aren't, which is an opportunity for learning and then iterating and, and trying something else. And, and so it's a very fast-paced, creative, you have to be very generative, and you, um, you can't really hold on to your sacred cows. You've, you've got to be willing to be um, very flexible and experiment and learn rapidly and adjust rapidly. The private sector is sort of the antithesis of that. So in the, in the startup ecosystem, you know, I, I don't know exactly what the stats are, but for every many dozen companies that are started, only only one will survive, and and so there's there's a very high sort of turnover rate. Government is the opposite. We we rely on our government to be stable and and kind of risk averse and to always be there. But the downside of that is is that you get less of that experimentation and and drive to improve. And so I think there's a happy medium here. I mean, certainly government can't operate just like a business. We don't get to choose our customers, right? When you're starting, <laughs> exactly. you know, when you're starting a company, you can have a very narrow market segment that you're going after. The public sector is all about serving the public at large and and ideally serving everyone equally well. Um, or at least giving everyone what they need. And so, you know, while government can't function like a business, I, I like to say that I think it should try in some important respects. And, and the one that I really emphasized is essentially these performance management best practices of setting clear goals, agreeing on the objective measures of success. So coming to an agreement around what success looks like over a given time frame. So that might be in one year from now, we want to have reduced our street homelessness rate by 20% or our crime rate or improved our park conditions by X amount. And so having an objective measure of success 
is really important. Obviously, in the private sector, it ultimately comes down to whether or not you can be profitable. So we need to use quality of life outcomes uh, in, in the public sector to create that feedback loop because we don't, we don't have that same dynamic of revenue and profit that, that you have in the private sector to hold everyone accountable. And then from there, I think it's really important that we're identifying our best strategies, our hypotheses, mm-hmm. if you will, for how we're going to create that outcome and then explicitly implementing them and measuring along the way and trying to understand if the strategies that we are employing are having the intended impact. And the learning cycle is going to be slower. I find that it tends to be annual or less frequently. It's sort of when we, when we do the budget every year, we kind of look at how we've been doing. And I'm trying to create tighter learning cycles and get us to set a smaller number of goals, be really explicit about how we measure success, be very clear about our strategies, measure their performance, and then check in regularly so that we can adjust along the way. And that just, as you, I'm sure, well know, is not how government is used to operating. So that's, that's kind of how I would contrast those two uh, spaces. And, and it's been interesting to sort of have a foot in both of those worlds. Well, I think what's interesting, too, is like a lot of work that we do as an evaluation firm is is federal, but it, they'll look at things biannually, right? Like every six months. Right. But I think what you're also mentioning is even in the public sector, resources are still finite. They may be less finite than they are in the private sector, but it's still finite. People don't necessarily have unending amounts of resources to deploy or unending amount of tax dollars, that type of thing, right? So I think there's greater pressure for individuals to really understand where are my tax dollars going? That's a common like theme that a lot of like, individuals say is like, where are my tax dollars going? And I think what you're advocating for is a great way to answer that question, which is, hey, this is specifically where tax dollars went. This is how it was being used. And oh, by the way, this is what we were able to achieve by nature of those resources. So it's almost like a policy implementation combined with fiscal and economic policy. You know, it's all those cross-functional social sector, public areas. I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that the public trust component of this is so important. And one of the most common things I heard when I was out knocking on doors, I I knocked on about 10,000 doors. I saw that, which is pretty amazing because, you know, if you think about it, door knocking to a large degree, people are like, oh, social media. And so the idea that you went back to one of the more quote unquote traditional forms. It works. it's like some things you just can't beat, right? People That's interaction, right. connection, and talking to people, and especially across age demographics, right? Your seniors Absolutely. and certain age groups are more apt to answer the door and talk to you than they're not on Instagram necessarily, right? right. Yeah, no, it's still in face-to-face in person is still the, the sort of highest bandwidth form of communication we have, really. I mean, it's just, it's so, there's so much, it's, it's just it's such a high quality experience. So yeah, I spent a lot of time knocking on doors. And as you said, one of the most common questions I got was where, where does all the money go? I mean, in, in California, it's very common for people to be paying 10, 15, the Bay Area, maybe even $20,000 a year yep. in property taxes just property taxes and wonder, well, I don't understand why my roads aren't well-maintained or why homelessness seems to be increasing. And so that public trust component is especially important in the public sector because in the private sector, 
you know, frankly, if you have 20 food delivery apps and many of them die because they, they aren't able to innovate and compete and deliver a better service at a better cost, we're all okay with that. I mean, it's, it's hard on the folks who start those companies and have to find a new job. But at the end of the day, that's part of the genius of our system is that we have that. And we weed people out. Capitalism weeds yeah. people out. Let's just be honest. It weeds out the inefficiency, right? Naturally. Right. You have creative destruction, and that's a good thing generally in the private sector. We just don't have that dynamic in the public sector. And so it's incumbent upon us to create feedback loops because the, the, the thing that, that has been quite a shock for me stepping into the public sector is that the revenue is there and it's relatively stable no matter how well we perform, which is, the, again, kind of the antithesis of a competitive, mm -hmm. a highly competitive marketplace. And, and so, you know, we could do a great job, a terrible job, somewhere in between, which is probably where we normally are. And the tax revenue is basically, it's finite, as you said, mm -hmm. but it's also, it's, it's, it's kind of stable and just slowly increases with property. Well, because we're all forced to pay taxes, right? <laughs> like it's, right? Every resident will pay it or a citizen will pay it, right? right. And as long as you have headcount, to pay it, it'll fluctuate, right? How much we pay may fluctuate, but like to your point, it's still a reliable source of revenue, right? Right, but the, the, the negative incentive there can be for us as, as a bureaucracy for the city or any government agency to just sort of turn the crank and take, take last year's budget and copy and paste it into <laughs> this year's budget yep. and say, well, we'll just do that plus, you know, 3% or whatever the revenue increase was, rather than, in a competitive marketplace and in the private sector, there's a, a real emphasis on change initiatives because you have mm -hmm. to be constantly evolving and iterating and seeking to better serve the customer more efficiently, more effectively. So anyway, that's kind of the mindset I've been trying to bring to the council. And, and I think people are, are interested. I wouldn't say that we've had a huge breakthrough yet, but um, although I can talk to you about our 311 app if you're interested. Yeah, I would love to hear more about their 311 app. And I think that something that you mentioned is like, but what's always interesting to me is those citizens do respond in the sense like you hear from your friend who's moving out of state or moving cities or like they're upset about this. So they move about, you know, so there is in a lot of ways, though, movement that is occurring in response to what people perceive is not necessarily being done about something or that they disagree with. Right. You're right about Which that. It does actually impact revenue. We just may not be as cognizant of it, but like You're I'm totally sure right. you know, our accounting teams of different cities are actually looking at who's moving in and who's moving out of certain cities from a revenue standpoint. Oh, primarily absolutely. Yeah. And in fact, I'm I'm reading Ray Dalio's book right now called The Changing World Order. I'm reading it too. Are you? So, it's such yeah, a good read. It's, yeah, it's, it's a great it's, book. And I think it, it's made me reflect on the fact that the, the, the quality of our institutions, our public institutions in particular, and the long-term impact that our decisions in the public sector have can't be overstated. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. in, the, in the long run, our, 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 our health and, our, um, and our, our competitiveness and the opportunity that we have in the long run ends up being partly driven by public sector policies. And, um, and you're absolutely right that the challenge we face is how to create that feedback loop in a short enough time frame that we make better decisions. That's really what I think our data efforts ought to be geared toward because sure, in 20, over a 20 year time period or a 50 year time period, we'll figure out which cities, states and countries made good public policy decisions. But by then it's very hard. You don't to have that time or that luxury to your point, no. right? You and I may be dead then. <laughs> like, yeah. 
like exactly. honestly for the next generation where like i mean just look at the pandemic alone speed speed is like everything agility is everything right now i mean i can't remember what i ate for breakfast much less like you know because things have changed almost instantaneously such that it's just accelerating so i think that feedback yeah. loop that you're alluding to is super important and just to connect that with the 311 app is that the purpose of why you guys created a 311 app well yeah i wanted to point to the the the, the harder part I think is, is often once you decide to, to create something, mm -hmm. how do you continuously improve it? And so that's what we've been focused on. We've had a 311 app for at least a few years now. It's become a go-to place for residents to report various concerns. So if you see a pothole or illegal dumping on the side of the road or a street light is out or an abandoned vehicle, you can report that. And then we have yeah. various services plugged into our different city departments that then fulfill those requests. They go out and address those issues. And, and we had some measurement in place, but this year we made real progress toward creating that, that iterative cycle of, of trying things, learning, you know, me measuring our performance, analyzing the data, learning what's working and what isn't, and continually improving our service delivery. It's one thing to just create a static app and mm -hmm. say, well, here's what we do. And we'll just, the performance is what it is. It's quite another to say, you know, we're going to keep pushing to improve service delivery. And this app is sort of the, the choke point at which we can, we, can, we can measure outcomes. And so we've gone from just in 12 months, two thirds of residents using our 311 app when surveyed on their satisfaction expressed dissatisfaction of some kind, some level of mm -hmm. intensity, by the end of the year, we had inverted that and fully two thirds of residents using the app stated that they were satisfied with the service delivery. And there were a lot of little changes along the way, better loop closing, faster response times, better explanations for what was being done and, and, and why an issue was being resolved or why it couldn't be resolved, all sorts of little tweaks and improvements along the way. But the important thing from a process standpoint that should be extended, in my opinion, be extended to everything we do as a city is that we were clear, just going back to those core principles, we knew what success looked like, we set benchmarks, we had, we, we measured customer satisfaction, we measured our, our service delivery, and we were actually going through a regular process of reflecting on our performance, identifying our weak spots, hypothesizing how we could improve, implementing those hypotheses, those new strategies, and then measuring to see if they in fact worked. And that cycle, that's exactly what I, I'm trying to bring from my experience building consumer tech startups. And, and I think that mentality is just one that's, that's been sort of missing in local government, but there's a lot of low hanging fruit. So I'm really happy our, our 311 app is heading in a great direction. We're adding more services, customer satisfaction's going up, more people are using it. And I really think in the long run, that might become the primary interface between the, the average resident and their city government. Well, I think what's important is it's kind of like you just highlighted like what I consider in our world as a company, like the first initial like stages of well working data from which you can now overlay that with what transformations are occurring, right? Because it's right. almost like once you get that foundation of the kind of the 
the requests and the observations and are people happy, right? Then you can start to get more complex or more sophisticated in that data measurement about what are we seeing are the changes that are occurring. So it also goes beyond just like a work request app, if that makes sense, right? Because right. you don't just want it to be like, hey, you see something on the street, you type it in, it's almost like, you know, Waze app or like next door app where you're complaining, right? You don't want to necessarily just be that, but like the feedback loop that you're generating is now like, how do we collectively analyze and look at this information to see, are we actually reducing the number of people that are homeless within the city? Are we actually being able to alleviate food scarcity with, you know, like you can now address more complex uh, public sector concerns, but you have to have that foundation of information gathering and kind of performance benchmarking. Otherwise you can't even address or look at those things because it's so out there. Right, right. And then it just becomes people's individual opinions or it's anecdotal or it's based on what expose the local paper just did. And and all those things have value, but really we ought to be rooted in a a comprehensive measurement and analysis of what's happening in our community and how well our services are performing. And that ought to be the basis for, for our decisions about where we allocate budget or you know, which, who gets promoted or, or where, you know, which programs are working and which ones we might want to cut. And, and it really needs to be rooted in, in real world performance data and outcomes. And I, I think we've, we're making steps in that direction, but there's still a long way to go. So what can um, residents do or what can citizens, you know, even outside of San Jose do to support your efforts? Because like you've acknowledged you understand the importance and the significance of this, and especially in response to and in support of a lot of like residents support for like, hey, I want to know what's happening. I want to see that things are being done. I want to know where my taxpayer dollars are going. Like, how would you encourage people to support your efforts and to kind of help to move it along, for lack of a better description, more quickly, right? Because you're one person, you got your team, you got, you know, but it's like, how can people become more active to advocate and or get more involved? And regardless of whether or not they live in San Jose or not, but that extra support will be beneficial in terms of us, all of us moving in a more quicker, faster pace, per se, accountability. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start by saying that wherever you live, I think it's really important to be civically engaged, figure out who represents you at a local level, your city council member and school board member and your mayor, those, those folks probably have a bigger impact on your quality of life and, um, and some of the really important services from road paving to schools, to parks, to you know, traffic congestion. I mean, this, those are local issues. And um, I think asking tough questions and, and the nature of the question yeah. that you ask, it's, you know, it's fine to say, what are you gonna do about homelessness? What are you going to do about crime? Those are reasonable questions. But um, I would also ask questions like, you know, what is is the goal? What does success look like? How are you measuring your performance? I mean, thinking thinking about trying to instill that mentality in the candidates Mm -hmm. who are running to represent you so that they aren't just saying some nice things about how they care about the homeless or how they're worried about crime. We, We want to get beyond the rhetoric and toward how do we measure success? What strategies are you going to implement? Why do you think they're going to work? How will you measure if they're effective? How do you think we should be allocating resources? I think asking better questions is, is almost always the best starting place. 
I'm, and, and this is not, you know, this is not a, a pitch, but I'm, I'm running for mayor in San Jose on an agenda of reform, essentially, because I know that city government can run more effectively. And that's not to denigrate anyone who works in local government. We have incredible people working at City Hall who care deeply about our residents and work incredibly hard and have really tough jobs. Uh, institutionally, however, we have not set ourselves up for success. We have a, a very large, sprawling, complex bureaucracy with a lot of silos. A lot of functions are spread, not just across City Hall, but also extend over to the county and the water district and the school boards. And so there's this level of decentralization that makes it really difficult to get things done. And I, I think that the best path forward for local government, and this is true across the board, not just in San Jose, is to radically simplify and become more data enabled. We need to set clear goals. We need to agree on how we're measuring success. We need to be clear about how we're allocating your tax dollars to achieve a given outcome. We need to measure along the way and continuously measure and analyze and report out on our performance. And it shouldn't be a it shouldn't be scary for people in government. This should actually be empowering. If we can measure our performance and be honest with the public about what is and isn't working, it should free us up to be more flexible and more creative. And for city staff or county staff to actually propose new solutions. And when they're not working, abandon them because we're going to try something else. And that I found very empowering in my startup experience. And I think we could use a little more of that in local government. So um, I am running that campaign on, on kind of a, a package of, of some new ideas about how government ought to run. Well, I think that'll resonate with a lot of individuals, at least who I talk to through my work, whether or not it's um, in the academic space or education or nonprofits or for-profit, right? The common denominator across all sectors is people. But more importantly, people are realizing, especially right now during the pandemic, is that there's a lot more urgency, right, for solving and coming up with solutions and, a, and, a, and to a certain extent, a finite amount of resources to do that. And a lot of people are anxious and fearful about what decisions they make. And I think something you just highlighted is the empowerment piece of what data can do, but also the clarity that comes from it. And so, you know, I think the initial thought is there's almost like a fear factor of, you know, if I can see what's under the car, then I really know what's wrong. Right. There's a part of you that doesn't want to know what's wrong, right? But right. there's another part of you that would have peace which I think is really important around like, at least I know, at least I know what I need to do differently or what right. I need to change. And that alone brings like reduction in anxiety and stress and fear, because at least, you know, even if it's not what you wanted to hear, yeah. right. At least, you know, which is really significant. I also think that becoming more data driven and having those cycles of, measuring, analyzing, reflecting, refining, it creates a very healthy separation between the people and personalities and the, and the, the, the ideas that we're implementing in their performance. And we, can, we, we need to create that separation. You know, I, I'm amazed that, you know, in, in the startup environment that I worked in, we were constantly identifying failure and, and it was, it was a, 
it, it was a good thing in the sense that it was it was all about our learning cycles. How fast could we learn? In fact, start. Some people argue that you know the best measure of a startup is how fast it's it's learning meaningful meaningful things. And and I think you know there's sort of a tendency in local government I've seen at least to try to paint a, ro- a rosy picture. We want to tell the public that everything's okay. We got you spin this. It, this. Right? It's PR. You spin it. Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of like well, we don't want to. We don't want to scare people. We certainly don't want to admit failure and we don't want to, we don't want to be wrong. But, you know, I think that people see through that and we might actually, ironically, in this, in this world that we're in today, that is so, um, so fragmented, so digitally mediated, so data-driven that we might actually build trust by admitting, I think we would build more trust by admitting the things that aren't working and taking the, the, the personality out of it. I mean, it shouldn't be just because a strategy or a program isn't having the intended outcome doesn't mean that the people who came up with the idea or implemented it are bad people or are incompetent. It just means that our hypothesis when tested in the real world didn't work how we thought. And that's an opportunity for us to learn and say, what do we take away from this? And how do we then do it better in the future? And all too often I see programs and initiatives and ideas just kind of limp along and they're sort of subscale, sub under underfunded, mm-hmm. not having much impact. And it's like, well, what did we learn here? Is this thing actually going to work? Does it scale? Is it going to have a big impact for a lot of people? Or are we kind of just letting it limp along because we don't want to admit failure? We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And if we can kind of separate out the performance of our programs from the people running them, and continue to nurture and care for and respect the people who run them, but be willing to, to you know, kill underperforming programs faster and double down on things that work, we're all going to be better off. Well, people, I think to your point, like, let's be real, the public already knows what's going on that's wrong. Okay, so spinning right. it isn't helpful to anybody because boots on the ground, like, they're not like people aren't dumb. They can see what's going on. Right. So spinning it to your point doesn't necessarily contribute to trust. It's like, it's not authentic. It's not, Hey, you actually see what's going on. You get me right. Which is what people want to know. So I think to your point, it's changing that approach to just be, to admit fault leaders that can say, Hey, at that time and place, I made the best decision possible. Things change. You know, I notice in retrospect, it wasn't the right decision. However, I'm going to go this direction now. People as human beings can understand that. Like we know we make mistakes, but it's when we right. think that we're like the superhuman superhero that does no wrong. That's truly, I think, when we get in trouble because we intuitively know that's not humanly possible to be right all the time. And right. I think I think that's what people are looking for is that recovering, that healing is literally admitting, hey, I can be wrong sometimes, but I'm doing the best I can. And here's the information I have. And this is what we're all doing to make the best sense of it. People can get behind that. People can support that because they know if they were in that position, God forbid, they could they make a better decision or not, right? But I think people are perfectly empathetic to that. But it's when we, we like to not admit fault. We like to think that we're all knowing that's when we get into so much trouble. So I think you're right. Like data can really alleviate that, but really appreciate your time in terms of sharing what you're working on and really wish you a lot of luck with the mayor mayor campaign. When will you find out Matt in terms of like what's going on next? 
Yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you about something that I know is is near and dear to both of our hearts. The primary is in June, and then the top two vote getters go on to November. If if people are at all interested, they can check out Mahan for San That's M-A-H-A-N for San Jose.com. And um, we're trying to put forward a lot of creative new ideas borrowed from my experience building startups. And it's a very ideas-driven campaign. So we'll we'll see how it goes. Well, I know a lot of individuals would love to hear it even here in Orange County. So happy to like share and collaborate. So appreciate your thanks, time. Thanks, Tracy. It's good Thank to you so that. much. Yeah, thanks for all the great work you're doing in this space. Look forward to being in touch soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.